Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In 1988, the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as soon as they were eligible to be inducted. And it was an absolutely fine celebration and nothing went wrong and everybody was happy. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Thank you. Good night. (laughs) They all had a big celebration and um, this isn't going to turn into one of those uh, big legal discussions, is it, Stephen? Everything is going to turn into a big legal discussion. (laughs) It's either that or they all lived happily ever after and we know they didn't do that. No, we did not. Um, So, yeah, so this is the tale of uh, the time that the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame up top, because it's a very, I know these words are kind of used in a derogatory term these days, but it's a very 1980s boomer uh, idea, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, the 1980s, as you say, it's a period in which rock music is kind of entering its middle age, slightly uncomfortable middle age, and all those all that rock royalty from the 1960s, they're turning 40. Nobody can be a rock Shocking. and roller at 40. <laughs> well, you know, we, we've touched upon this before, and yeah, I was a, a kid in the 80s, so this is where an awful lot of my tastes were formed. And I do remember the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame coming into existence, and I do remember also Chuck Berry's Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Do you remember that film coming out? I do indeed. Yeah, which I think was 1986. And at that point... It was kind of being sold as Chuck Berry is so old. Yes. He is so, he's in his 50s and he needs to have a movie celebrating him. So at that point, rock and roll in the mid 80s is about 30 years old. It's 20 years since the 60s. And it's kind of being set up that this was as good as it was ever going to get. This was the best music ever and you need to celebrate it. And it's very important. Um, but again, these guys, in retrospect, were still very, very young. They're in their 40s. Nobody notices Bono in his 60s these days. Nobody notices, you know, Blur or Oasis heading into their 50s. And in retrospect, they were trailblazers. But yeah, in the 80s, to be in your 40s was just a disaster. There really was a perception you couldn't do this in your 40s. You know, I tell that story about having to see the Stones before Jagger <laughs> turned 40 because they couldn't possibly still be going yeah. when Jagger hit 40. The other thing that had happened, of course, was in 1980, John Lennon had died. Yeah. And I do think there is a sense that we've got to honour these people while they're still with yes. us. Yes. You know, Chuck Berry, the Hail Hail Rock and Roll is a good example. He's still here. So while he's still here, because he's really, really old, we've got to, uh, we've got to celebrate him. I, I, I tried to wonder, you know, what was the year 
when rock started to look back at itself and kind of uh, go up its own fundament, you know? And does it start as early as 67 when you start getting into the really serious journalism? I think the early 70s when people are out of the 60s and you have like the who very much, you know, with things like Quadrophenia. You know, Quadrophenia only happened eight years ago and you're already writing this big elegy towards this uh, this mystical time. Um, it, it's It's very much a trope of the genre itself, that it starts kind of looking back at itself. That's true. And as you say, rock journalism plays an important part because you do, you move out of that era of toe-tapping hits or this song is a great beat or this is a great danceable tune into these huge expositions on what this is all about, what this particular album is about, what music is about, what a particular artist stands for. And um, I suppose when it's done well, it's done very well. Um, when it's done not so well, it can be incredibly pretentious. And as you say, it takes itself incredibly seriously. And I suppose Rolling Stone is the example of that. When those Rolling Stone articles, those huge you know, multi-part articles that spread across two or three editions of the magazine, they could be fantastic, mm-hmm. but they could also... Um, they're sort of elegizing themselves, really. And, and Rolling Stone is a good thing to keep in the back of our mind because when we look at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, what is it? It's not like a public or a government body. It's, it is essentially a private enterprise, albeit one with a, a somewhat charitable notion. Yeah, it's a money-making exercise and it's a <laughs> self-aggrandizing exercise for some of the people who are involved, let us say. Naming no names, well, Jan Wenner. Well, naming no names, but speaking, yeah, that's what I was going to say, Jan Wenner, um, who hasn't had a great 2023, it has to be said, and no. has been kicked off the board at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, because of his extraordinary book, um, um, where he decided to interview uh, the greats of rock and roll, and none of them were women. Yeah, and most of them were white. Uh, yes, and, and you know, you might forgive that, but when he was asked about why, he said some really crazy things about how... Um, Let's just not go into it. Maybe. He did the Jan Wenner thing, which he just doubled down. Yeah. You know, he's asked about it and he said, well, you know, no, well, no great women philosophers in rock. Yes. So if you don't know Jan Wenner, he was and still is the forever kind of editor of Rolling Stone. He was one of the founders of the magazine in 1967. Uh And he maintained control of the magazine across the 1970s. And by the time we get into the early 80s, he is starting to realise that, well, we need a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's kind of understandable. There's a Baseball Hall of Fame and there's a Football Hall of Fame. So his notion was that there'd be a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Although I have to admit now that the term rock and roll sounds a little bit quaint in 2023. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, it's established in 1983 and there's some good people attached there. There's Amit Ertegun and uh, Seymour Stein, who are record executives. Um, Bob Krasnow and Noreen Woods. Shrugs shoulders. (laughs) Not sure who they are. (laughs) And and some attorneys, because you can never have enough lawyers, Alan Grubman and Susan Evans. And it starts in 1986. And the thing that's quite interesting is they have this 25-year rule. That's the point. So when they start inducting artists in 1986, incredibly, the Beatles are not 25 years on from their first recording. So they're not eligible. And 25 years seems like this massive period of time. And I guess from 1986 perspectives, rock and roll is roughly 30 years old, depending on where you count from. Um, So you're thinking, okay, well, 25 years brings us back to the first 
you know, a couple of years of rock and roll. Nowadays, obviously, with the 25-year rule, we're inducting people from 1998, so Coldplay will be up soon. <laughs> and uh, it, it seems, uh, again, it seems like another one of these kind of odd anachronisms. But that was the rule, the 25-year rule, and they start in 1986. And it's all the usual suspects in 86, isn't it? Elvis, you get James Brown, Little Richard, Vance Domino, Ray Charles, Chuck Berry, Sam Cooke, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, and Jerry Lee Lewis. So all the people you would expect the sort of foundation, foundational texts of rock and roll, in inverted commas. Um, and it kind of continues in 87. You get B.B. King, The Coasters, Muddy Waters, Rick Nelson, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin. Oh, a woman. That's good. Um, a woman, yeah. <laughs> a woman. And uh, But, you know, even though the Beatles don't get inducted into 1998, there is Beatles activity related to it. They are part of the... The, the kind of the congregation of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so to speak. They are. So 1986 starts with a lot of Beatles and Beatles adjacent related awards activity. And in addition to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the 80s generally is a period where sort of foundational people in rock are being honoured and awards are being handed out like sweet. So suddenly it's like everybody gets an award for something. But we start with uh, the, the first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Awards on January the 23rd, 1986, and Elvis is inducted. And who are you going to get to induct Elvis? Julian and Sean Lennon. Sean Lennon is 10 years old at this point, so he's, uh, um, he's, he's getting out in front of the, uh, the cameras. It's interesting. John, Sean Lennon's 1980s is an interesting period because he becomes a more and more public figure as the as the yeah. decade goes on and I think that's a, that's a hard mantle I think to have to wear um, and then to drag him into Elvis Presley's induction at the first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame okay I know that seems very strange to, for, for a 10 year old child to be put into the spotlight like that but uh, it's Julian that makes the speech and he is so nervous <laughs> yeah. this, this is available on, on YouTube yeah. it's very sweet uh, the two of them standing there with their 1980s outfits and haircuts and uh, Julian is incredibly nervous so I, I think there is that direct link back to John Lennon and I do think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in some part a reaction to his death that uh, you know these people aren't here anymore so let's we've got to do this while people are still with us. Yeah, this notion of a rock and roll kind of family is, is, is what they're yeah. pulling at. And this, as you say, happens on January the 23rd, 1986. It is awards season. So there's awards happening for all the Beatles all around the world. Everywhere, everywhere. So three days later on January the 26th at the annual London Evening Standard Film Awards at the Savoy, George Harrison and his very good friend and business manager, <laughs> Dennis O'Brien, they pick up an award on behalf of handmade films for their contribution to the British film industry. And this is sort of so unlike the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So George just goes up, collects the award from the Duchess of Kent, calls her Your Majesty, <laughs> and she is completely charmed and replies by giving him a kiss on the cheek, which is a complete break with royal protocol. But George, always the ladies' man. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the, the next day, January the 27th, um, at the 13th Annual American Music Awards, uh, Paul is in a segment and he is in the Hippodrome. This is another thing that's on YouTube and it's very amusing to watch. And he receives a special award of merit in recognition of 20 years of achievements. And it's presented by his good friend, Phil Collins. Phil Collins, who is actually hosting the British segment of the show. And this is obviously some years before the, uh, let's call it the Little Phil incident. 
So we talked about the little Phil. We have. You know, for, for, we, we, we have. But, Phil um, has become another one of these spirit animals of nothing is real, where he keeps appearing and, uh, and being deep in our thoughts. He does have forms. He does have history with Paul. So he was 13 when he appears in A Hard Day's Night, except he doesn't appear because they cut the scene. Perhaps that's a source of annoyance to him after all these years. Perhaps he's always carried a grudge at being left on the cutting room floor. I think we should be his therapist. Let's ring him up and put him on the couch and say, where did all this begin, Phil? So then he plays on Angry and Press to Play. We talked about that, and he's scathing about that. But he is a big mover and shaker in the Prince's Trust. And again, what one of the things in the 80s are these Prince's Trust concerts. So that's a charity that was established in 1976 by the Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, if he's listening. <laughs> Hello, sir. <laughs> Yes, indeed. OBEs this way. You can't get. You can't get a knife. I would. I would not take that OBE. <laughs> I'll have yours. Okay, two OBEs. It basically, it's a. It's it's a charity to help young people. And again, the Beatles. You know, Paul played in the tenth anniversary gig on the twentieth of June, nineteen eighty six. Again, with Phil Collins, uh, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, all the usual people turn up. The little Phil incident takes place in two thousand and two. Mm. Um, did occur to me that they all got on stage and sang All You Need Is Love. Yep. So I would like to ask Paul, did the little Phil encounter happen before or after you all sang All You Need Is Love? Because I think it would be quite funny if Phil was sitting there at the back fuming <laughs> while having to drum on uh, All You Need Is Love. Yeah, the, the little Phil incident is from 2002 when Paul is with Heather Mills and he, Phil asks him to sign a copy of the Hunter Davies book. And, you know, we've said this before, Paul says... Uh, um, you know, he asks, would you sign it? And, and he says, uh, oh, uh, Heather, our little Phil's a bit of a Beatles fan. And what I do wonder about all of this is that whole Heather Mills period, which I don't think anyone perhaps has their best moments during that time. It could be said. I'm not sure. Uh, he said politically. So, yeah, so 1986, it's awards season. Um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opens for business. In 1987, the Beatles are still not eligible, um, but uh, and there isn't any Beatles there at all. Um, but there is a, a Wilbury inducted in 1987. There is a Wilbury. So Roy Orbison uh, gets inducted. And as is in the nature of these things, there's you get somebody else to come and some other rock star to come and uh, do a speech and induct the person. And uh, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, inducts Roy Orbison and it's the kind of thing I have to say I'm not a huge Bruce Springsteen fan but he's very good at uh, singing the praises of uh, his influences so he said I wanted to sing like Roy Orbison his voice was unearthly he had the ability like all great rock and rollers to sound like he dropped in from another planet and yet he did stuff that went right to the heart of how you were living every day that's how he opened up your vision and made a little town in New Jersey sound as big as all of his records I'll always remember what he means to me and what he meant to me when I was young and afraid of love. One, two, three, four. And off he went into one of his... uh, (laughs) Off he went. Well, look, it's worth saying, as we talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Rolling Stone and, and kind of rock and roll eating its own tail, Bruce Springsteen's manager, John Landau, is part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Indeed. My theory about Bruce Springsteen generally is that he is the first rock star when he kind of broke through in 73 to 75, who was aware of the history of rock music and was trying to emulate it. It's some of the problems I have getting through to Bruce Springsteen's music is that he's so imbibed with the historical importance of rock and roll Mm. um, that, 
you know, it's kind of part of his artistic DNA, so to speak. So he's a perfect Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of guy, Bruce. Absolutely, absolutely. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's why it doesn't it doesn't land with me particularly because of that. And it's a very American thing, I think. You know, it's it's Highway sixty one and grand open spaces and deserts and New Jersey steel towns, and you don't get that in Ireland where everybody lives just an hour up the road. You know, it's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, there are more Princess Trust concerts in 1987. So this kind of notion of the uh, the rock and roll grandees all hanging out and having a very luxurious time in their nice motors, um, you know, it, it's all very respectable. And George and Ringo pop up uh, at the 1987 Princess Trust concerts. Um, and again, there's the usual suspects, Elton John, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, Dave Edmonds, Brian Adams, uh, and they do three Beatles songs. Yeah, so here comes the sun with a little help from my friends and while my guitar gently weeps. So we've talked about that in our George Harrison episode as being one of those steps in the road towards George appearing in Japan in 1991. But yeah, it is it is one of these all-star bands and I think you don't get these gigs anymore. You know, these don't happen. Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess you have an awful lot of collabs in the new pop world these days. It's very exciting. Oh, look, there's Taylor Swift on the National album, everybody. But um, yeah, it's not, I, th- I think there's a very much a, um, uh, I, I think these kind of gigs at the time led to a certain kind of cynicism with kind of younger music fans. Um, and, and when we talk about you know, oh, this shock that they're getting old and they're in their 40s. It wasn't really much the age. It was the fact that they were all turning up in their spangly jackets and this notion that rock and roll was something that had to have a, a meaning or something to fight for behind it. Well, they all seemed like they were having a jolly good millionaire's time. Yeah. And I mean, Phil does mention that in his book about, you know, well, we're all we, we we're all multimillionaire rock stars with consciences. We know about poor people and chat because we've all done Live Aid. And he is quite cynical in uh, about some of the the motivation uh, of some of the people. But yeah, it's like a big party for dads. I've <laughs> that sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> Occasionally they let, you know, they let a lady turn up and, you know, Tina Turner will come on and sing a song. But it is it is a very male-dominated um, event. Yeah. You've just year. reminded me of Elvis Costello's quote about Phil Collins, which was, it's amazing that he's always singing about the homeless and then going and voting Tory, which is what he used to say to put Phil down. Um, but yes, Phil Collins and Elvis Costello don't seem to get on either. Anyway, we then get to the big day itself, 1988, uh, Wednesday, January the 2nd, and it's the third year of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And incredibly, 1988 is 25 years on from the Beatles' first record. And I, I must admit, as a teenager in 1988, that seemed like a long time ago uh, that, twen- that, that Beatles were 25 yes. years old. Oh my God, this music is so old. And um, it, it's kind of known, though, from the get-go that the, you know, we were joking at the top that they all had a good time, but it is known that Paul is not going to turn up. Yes, yes. So they've scaled back the award ceremony. There's only going to be five acts inducted, but it is known that Paul isn't going to be there. But he hasn't issued a statement and I thought when I started looking into this I I assumed that Paul had made this clear very early on and why he wasn't going to be but according to the LA Times it was literally moments before the start of the dinner at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel because of course it's a dinner and it's you know thousands of dollars a plate etc so just a few moments before the start of the dinner one of his representatives sort of hands out a statement I like to think he went round and left one on every table (laughs) and the statement was 
After 20 years, the Beatles still have some business differences, which I had hoped would have been settled by now. Unfortunately, they haven't been. So I would feel like a complete hypocrite waving and smiling with them at a fake reunion. I think that's harsh. Hmm. You're bringing the party down. (laughs) Well... Yes. Now, there's also the other thing that was kind of happening around about this time was George's When We Was Fab single. That also came out in January 1988. And there was a notion that Paul might turn up for that video as well. And we've we've talked about this in our Kevin Godley episode. (laughs) Kevin Godley. And um, where, you know, you have Paul represented by a left-handed walrus and Ringo is in the video. But there was this notion that Paul would be part of that as well. And that's that's the same kind of thing that Paul is getting at, that he is using these lawsuits to say, well, we can't really, you know, let's make up and be friends, as the, the Bonzo said, um, you know, that they shouldn't be there. I personally think that, you know, behind all of this, Paul realises that there is a huge amount of capital in getting Paul, George and Ringo together. And why should that be given over to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Or why should that be given over to a George Harrison video when it could be used to a much better end, which is eventually what happens with Anthology, because we haven't been worn out by 1995 of seeing pictures of the three of them together. Do you think he's thinking it through in those terms? He's being as calculated as that? I don't mean calculated in a in a pejorative way. I mean, do you think he is he is thinking that through, or is he just thinking, well, I'm these guys are suing me, I'm suing them. I don't like Jan Wenner. Certainly, certainly Jan, Jan Wenner was no friend of Paul McCartney's in terms of, you know, he was very much on the Lennon side. Yes. A, a, a camp in the Lennon camp in the early 1970s. I think, I think both things are true. I think he, he really didn't feel like he wanted to stand up there when there were lawsuits going on. But it also does work as a cover because I, even if he wasn't thinking specifically about the anthology, uh, I do think the Beatles at that stage in 19... 19- Uh, 88. They could only really reunite once. Mm. And if they had reunited in 1988 at an award ceremony, then everyone would be like, well, there, we've done it. We've seen them all together. That's it. And it does have value and worth. And there's, you know, to the the three of them as as an entity. And in the end, it ends up happening for the Beatles, not for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I think there's part of him that is probably aware of that. He's so he's so good at PR, isn't he? He is very good at PR. I suppose the other thing that happens at these Rock and Roll Hall of Fame awards is that when a band gets inducted, they get up on stage and they play a song. So, you know, yeah. you have these, these bands that don't speak to each other. So suddenly you have talking heads reunite years after they split to do, to do a performance or you get Blondie turn up and then you get lots of ex-members of Blondie wanting to be on <laughs> stage and playing and you get arguments. And so I suppose there would have been a pressure as well if the three Beatles had turned up and Julian was there and Sean was there. Yeah. They'd, they'd yeah. all no, just get up and give us a tune. Oh God, you wouldn't want that. Um, it is worth pointing out, uh, the comedian John Mulaney has a very amusing bit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is, why do all these bands wait 25 years to be inducted and then turn up without a speech? They all sort of lean, yes. on, the, they lean on the lectern and then give out about each other and then go off and play bad music. But uh, that's quite funny. So, um, yeah, Paul is saying, look, we have all these business differences. They're not sorted out. And we have to say to ourselves, uh-oh, I see some legal coming over the hill. What yes. are these business differences? Okay, well, let's go back to 1957 and we'll start there. Oh, jeez. Um, no, no, we can, go back, we, can go back to, we can go back to 1983 or we can go back to 1986. But let, let's, let's this start. This is like in, um, 
<laughs> Carl Sagan says, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you first have to go back and create the universe. Exactly. But I don't think we're going to go back that far. But okay. uh, no, which, which year should we start? Let's go back. Let's go back in time to 1983. <laughs> so December 1983. Mm. And on the 1st of December 1983, there is a meeting in the Dorchester Hotel. All the best meetings take place in the Dorchester mm. Hotel. So this is an eight-hour meeting in Yoko's eighth-floor suite with Yoko, Paul, George, and Ringo. And this is supposedly this being reported that it, this is going to basically conclude all of the sort of loose ends of Apple. Hmm. Yoko was in the UK for the first time since December 1980, and she tells the reporters, I have decided I don't need all my possessions, and I'm giving much away to charity. Imagine that. Imagine no possessions. Mm. So this meeting goes on. This meeting goes on all day, ends at 9 p.m. And then the three Beatles leave the building separately. And there are photographs kicking around because this this got press coverage at the time. So Ringo gets into his Rolls Royce with Barbara and is asked the question, are the Beatles going to get back together again? And his response is, don't be daft. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Paul and Linda leave last and nobody is particularly happy. It doesn't look like they were having a, a big old knees up. And anyway, what kind of what kind of rock and roll activity can happen in the Dorchester? It's obviously discussions and I'm, I'm sure there are lawyers in the room. I hope there are lawyers in the room. <laughs> um, I hope there are lawyers in the room. But yeah, they all look, you know, Paul and Linda leave. They're the last to leave. They get into their mark without saying anything. And there is a very good photograph of George looking really furious, really kind of grumpy. It's unusual for George. <laughs> That's not like him. What seems to happen here is this is the point at which the full extent of what we're calling the override, we've talked about this before, yep. becomes known uh, to the other Beatles. So we've talked about it before, but maybe it's worthwhile just giving a, a, a rundown of what the override actually is. Yeah, well, the override goes back to 1976 when essentially the Beatles as four individuals were still with EMI and that original Beatles contract expired and each of the four of them had a, an option to go elsewhere. And this is where John kind of goes into his house husband role and doesn't, he's essentially yeah. contact contractless until 1980 and double fantasy. Um, George moves across to Dark Horse, which already exists and that's with A&M initially and then Warner Brothers. Uh, Ringo goes off to Atlantic Polydor, but Paul decides to stay with EMI, and that's where the override appears. Yes, so Paul stays with EMI, and as part of that new deal, Paul negotiated an increase in the royalty payment that he would get on sales of Beatles records. So EMI gets obviously gets its cut, the, the four Beatles, and uh, get their cut. Paul wanted an increase. Now, this increase comes out of EMI's share. It's not that the other three are getting any less. It's just that Paul is getting a little extra, a little sweetener. Mm. But it did mean that rather than a four-way split on sales of Beatles records, Paul is getting more beans. (laughs) He's getting a little bit extra. But as you say, the the four-way split still happens and they get their four-way split. And then EMI decide to give him a little tip, a little extra little yeah. extra, few extra beans. Uh, so he's, you know, stays with the label Harry Krishna and all of that. Um, but this comes to light uh, in this December 83 meeting and it does lead to legal action. Hooray! Hooray! Uh, at, the st- <laughs> at the start of 1985. So this is when Harrison, Ringo and Yoko 
uh, file a writ against McCartney. And this is serious stuff. It is serious stuff. So this is February 85. It's an $8.6 million claim on the basis that Paul was, quote, earning a preferential royalty from Beatles records to the others as an incentive for him to re-sign with Capital, EMI, as a solo artist. And Capital admit this. This this sort of comes out in, in the various papers. And uh, Rolling Stone reported on mm-hmm. this in February 1985. And it says, uh, the discovery came to light in the wake of two recent legal manoeuvres involving the Beatles. In December, Yoko Ono, George Harrison, Ringo Starr initiated legal action against McCartney by filing a summons with the New York State Supreme Court. This relates to a further $45 million suit filed by Apple Records and now joined by all three surviving Beatles and Yoko Ono against Capital EMI, charging that from 1969 to 1979, the Beatles record company failed to pay millions of dollars in royalties to the band. The suit also asks that the group be released from its contract with Capital. In addition, an Apple audit Mm -hmm. asserts that in that 10-year period, Capital EMI destroyed 19 million Beatles records and that this scrapping is a mere subterfuge for records that were sold without payment to the Beatles. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, the Beatles he, collectively are suing for 45 million uh, for unpaid royalties and uh, just keep things going. Between themselves, the other three are suing Paul. <laughs> it's quite amazing that they can be united on one front and not united on another front. But this is not uncommon in the world of legal shenanigans. But it, it's amazing. It just seems that these guys can't get a break. But we can, and we'll be right back. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. Um, so, yeah, there's these myriad of lawsuits. They're going back into the 1970s. Um, there was a, a, a 1979 UK lawsuit. So this is the unpaid royalties um, by EMI to Apple. So this would cover kind of 66 to 79. Um, what's going on there? Again, it's about unpaid royalties. The court orders an audit of the accounts. Capital file a countersuit alleging that the Beatles have not complied with that contract. And this goes back, we talked before about what is sometime in New York City. Is it a, a Beatle record mm-hmm. in the sense of Beatles or solo, or is it a John and Yoko record? So Capital is now arguing sometime in New York City is not actually a Beatles record and therefore doesn't trigger the uplift in royalties. Everybody's suing everybody else. It's in this context that the override emerges. And then we go into 1984 
and the Beatles win the 1979 lawsuit over royalties. There are separate lawsuits have to be brought in the UK because mm-hmm. EMI is basically everything outside North America and then capital is North America. So in the UK, Apple get $4 million from EMI because of this. This then leads to capital in the US offering an $8 million settlement that includes an increase in the US royalty payments to $1.20 per record. So they've got their $4 million in the UK, they've got an $8 million settlement on offer, and the Beatles themselves are now divided as to whether it would be better to settle at that rate or go to court. Inevitably, this three to one, Paul wants to accept Capital's offer, George, Yoko, and Ringo are against it. Now, remember, Paul is with Capital at this point. Mm. But the reason, apparently, that they uh, they don't want to settle goes back to the override, is that they, you know, Paul is like, hey, can we just be nice with EMI? And uh, the other three are saying, no, we want what Paul has. We want the same amount of beans as Paul. Exactly. Paul is concerned that it might go in the other direction. That mm. capital that they might say, well, we'll reduce Paul's override. Would you reduce <laughs> that as part of the settlement? So he, he doesn't want to uh, uh, do that. Now, this is also at a time when Paul is moving record labels, but we should explain that the override carries on. Mm-hmm. So the, over, the override was simply to get Paul to re-sign in 76. But if when that 76 contract expires, he moves to another label, he still gets the override. You know, the override is a perpetual thing uh, going forward. So essentially, in order to ramp up the pressure, the Beatles then ask the New York court for permission to supplement their royalty claims to include all the way up from 1979 to the present. The original complaint was 69 to 79. This now asks for 30 million in actual damages, 50 million in punitive damages, because Capital uh, supposedly destroyed uh, records. And then, this is the big pressure point, they also asked the court to terminate Capital's rights to manufacture and distribute Beatles products and for the transfer of all sound recording rights to the Beatles themselves. So this is the nuclear option. And and there is there is precedent for those kind of rights issues reverting back to the artists. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But if you think of what capital EMI capital would lose if it lost the rights to those original recordings, because at this stage, the capital and EMI have been milking the catalogue with these sort of terrible compilation albums. Um, so they're not the huge money earner, earning asset that they will become. But yeah, they're doing all right. Um, now, at the same time, you know, we have to kind of look about what's happening with them professionally, because this goes across, you know, the whole 80s. So, you know, in 83, 84, you have Paul and Ringo working together on Broad Street, and you have to kind of wonder what kind of things were they talking about uh, backstage? Mm. Yeah, I, I do wonder, famously, Ringo refuses to participate in any of the re-recording of Beatles material for, mm. for Broad Street. And you do sort of wonder, is this... Uh, is the override and the fact that he he only finds out about this in December 83 and he's already committed. He and Barbara are committed to doing this film with with Paul. So you do wonder, is that maybe a uh, a factor? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, December 83 is the Dorchester meeting and um, Broad Street's already underway by that point. Um, 
in middle of 1985, there's this expectation that they're going to appear at Live Aid. That doesn't happen. We mentioned that in our Press to Play episode. And um, But there is, as the, the, the case kind of proceeds, there is some um, admission from Capital that there were records scrapped. Yes, they claim that this is just an isolated incident uh, at Jacksonville, at its pressing plant there, but this, that, that they've been completely successful in correcting the situation. So the allegation there, and this is something that Klein sort of is is alleged to have done back in the early 70s, where you're, you're giving records away to pluggers and radio stations and things like that, or in Klein's case, allegedly selling them uh, under the counter. Um, but yeah, they, the EMI admit or Capital admit that some records were destroyed. The big win for the Beatles uh, is in July 86, where the Supreme Court Justice Donzin says, if the Beatles' claims are proven at trial, there should be no reason for them to be compelled to continue under the contract. That's the contract with capital EMI. So this is, mm. this is big, high stakes we're playing for at this point. But the stakes change again, because any of us who lived through the 1980s will remember how CDs changed the music business. And by the time you get into the mid-80s, um, people are rebuying their music on reissued CDs. And it kind of yeah. adds to this thing that we're talking about Rolling Stone, we're talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but also CDs kind of plug into this notion of these are the classic albums, these are the, the records you need to buy again as they come out on CD. And the, the, the notion of making money off a catalogue changes completely when the CD enters the picture. And so EMI are sitting on the Beatles CDs and the Beatles were quite late, just like with streaming. They were quite late coming yeah. to CDs. They didn't get reissued uh, until 1987 and that was the year of the Beatles on CD. So in February 1987, you have the first, they're kind of drip fed throughout the year. You have the first four uh, albums uh, coming out on CD and the decision that's made at this time is that the Beatles catalogue is going to be centred around the UK original issues, that the American issues are going to disappear into the sunset um, over the next couple of uh, months and years. And the first four albums come out. Uh, George Martin gets involved and says, these sound awful, let's just put out the mono versions. Yes, and this was quite a, quite a story at the time. People didn't want the mono versions, which I think is funny in retrospect, because now <laughs> the mono versions are what everybody sort of says is the... So um, Capital have to put out a statement and they say we had indeed prepared stereo CD releases of these albums. But when George Martin was called in to review them, he found their sound quality so bad that he had no alternative but to remix all four in mono and thus reach the scheduled release date. And again, we touched on this in the Press to Play episode. You know, what was George Martin doing in 1986 that avoided him working on Press to Play? Was this working on the, the CDs? But he actually is called in incredibly late. Uh, in the day. The other thing that happens in, in the first uh, half of uh, the year 1987 is that uh, Revolution appears in a Nike commercial, if you remember that mm. as a teenager. I do remember that. And I mean, this could be an episode in and of itself. There's certainly a book that has been written about the entire um, issue, yes. which is, is, is an interesting thing. It's kind of a good commercial, actually. It's certainly the first time I ever heard the song Revolution. 
And, uh, you know, imagine my disappointment when I, I bought the White Album and heard the much slower version. Um, but, uh, you know, this is also part of, you know, Jackson has, Michael Jackson has bought the Beatles songwriting um, catalogue. And so he's trying to make money off the ATV acquisition in 1985, which was uh, 47 and a half million. Um, but Yoko has kind of broken ranks with the, the Beatles because they didn't, the, 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 it's a very hot, it's another one of these hot button issues in the 80s, which is that music should not be used for commercials or, you know, if these older artists, you have kind of people like Genesis and Clapton at the time who were taking beer company money to go on tour and that this is not seen as being OK with the, uh, the, the ideals of the 1960s. And Neil Young is about to release this Notes for You, which is very much anti-corporate sponsorship, which all seems very quaint when you have... Um, uh, you know, those pop stars of 2023 being brand ambassadors for all sorts of things. And it's, you know, the be- the bigger the brand, the better the pop star you are. George Harrison at the time is sort of going, oh, it's terrible. You know, we next thing you know, Beatles music will be used to advertise ladies' underwear. Which is something that Bob Dylan did, obviously. It is. It is. I was just going to say Victoria's Secret and Bob Dylan. Mm. But um, so Apple actually sues in New York over this. But as you say, Yoko sort of breaks ranks by issuing a statement saying, you know, the the commercial is a way to make Beatles music accessible to a new generation. And I suppose that is the argument that you get today, perhaps. Um, have you seen the Isn't It a Pity? I've video? seen, uh, is, yeah, Isn't It a Pity is being used um, for some Christmas advertisements for Apple, it's an online Christmas film. And we've also this year had uh, Yellow Submarine, the actual original Beatles recording yeah. used in an advertisement for Airbnb. So I think that's something that we're going to see the, uh, I think we're going to see being a bit more prevalent in upcoming years where the Beatles will appear where maybe you would have been surprised to have seen them appear in the past. Um, but as 1987 progresses, um, there is still lawsuits uh, occurring. They get uh, paid money for the Beatlemania stage show. They get a settlement of about $10 million dollars. And we've covered the Beatlemania show on, a, on an ACAST Plus episode elsewhere um, because it was deemed that uh, Beatlemania uh, commercially exploited the Beatles' property. Um, but in the midst of all this and the 1987 reissue of the CDs, the Beatles launch another lawsuit. They launch another lawsuit against Capitol in New York Federal Court, which is centred on the delay around the release of the compact disc. So this is they're looking for $40 million this time. And Bhaskar Menon uh, of Capital, he blames the delay on insufficient manufacturing capacity. Plus, quote, it wasn't clear on what basis the Beatles CD royalties would be computed. And Capital wanted that issue resolved before the CDs were released. Um, The Beatles are basically accusing Capital of deliberately withholding the CDs to force a settlement of the earlier uh, the earlier disputes. So the three main lawsuits we have are, there's now a CD lawsuit, the Paul Override lawsuit, and then there's the Audit of the Accounts lawsuit are all kind of being juggled in the air. The other thing that's happening in 1987 is that um, George Harrison is getting a bit more active. He's returns to Abbey Road for the first time since 1971 to record some music for Shanghai Surprise. And he's starting to do press and interviews. So he is asked about, you know, his relationship with Paul and would he work with Paul? Uh, he's in Toronto, and of course, he's asked about uh, about Paul and would he Paul would like to write some songs with George. And George says yes, yes. Paul has suggested that maybe he and me should write something 
I mean, it's pretty funny, really. I mean, I've only been there about 30 years in Paul's life, and now he wants to write with me. But maybe it would be quite interesting to do that. There's a thing with Paul. One minute he says one thing, and he's really charming, and the next minute he's all uptight. We all go through that, good and bad stuff, but by now we've got to find the centre. He's being all conciliatory. He is being all conciliatory. So this kind of brings us to January 1988 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And by this stage, George Harrison has had uh, an, an amazing number one in the US charts with Got My Mind Set On You. He is the most successful solo Beatle in January yes. 1988 for a brief period of time. But he's also going to be, he's going to end that year by um, being one of the travelling Wilburys. So George is having a bit of an Indian summer in 87, 88, uh, and the Beatles are coming out on CD, and there's been the Sgt Pepper 20 years ago today, celebrations across the summer of 87. So the, the Beatles are getting back into the, the firmament, you know, they're getting back into the conversation and, you know, it's, it's this kind of trifecta of, you know, rock journalism and, you know, CDs and this kind of boomer explosion of rock in the, in the, in the 80s. So those are the, the, the things that are happening in 1988. And those are the legal reasons why Paul just doesn't turn up. But as you say, he doesn't announce it until literally they're walking in the door and people kind of start to shine a light on some of these legal problems. And I think it's very telling. It is this sort of passive aggressive way that all of them behave you you know so instead of just saying there are ongoing legal disputes and that's why i'm not turning up he goes you know it would be hypocritical to turn up at a fake reunion and he's immediately Mm. sort of saying but but look there's george and ringo and yoko and sean at the fake reunion being hypocrites so you can't just say i'm not coming because there's unfinished business And, you know, George will do the same, Uh, you know, so there's this sort of passive aggressive because they can't completely fall out with each other because Mm -hmm. in other other arenas, they're all bound together in these lawsuits. Um, So they have to preserve a, a, a modicum of communication. But, yeah, that sets the stage for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> so let's talk about the night itself, which is in the Waldorf Hotel, a big expensive dinner. People are paying massive money for, for, for their plates. It's the third dinner and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a building still won't exist for another couple of years. It doesn't open mm. until 1995 in Cleveland. And, um, you know, that's where it stands to, to this day. Um, I think the interesting part about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that there's an associated library in the University of Cleveland where you can go and review documents and things. And I guess that that's a, that, that, that's a good resource to have. But the actual event in 1988, it's, um, it's not the most smooth event of all time. It's not really full of brotherly love. If you could choose one Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to go back to, <laughs> this, this, I think, this, I think, would be the good one. And I think, I think were you de- making a deliberate pun with brotherly love there, but... Uh, well, you know, we should we should Mike Love, not war. But yeah, let's bring in everyone's favourite beach boy, Mike Love, who really sets the tone for the evening. He really does. So Elton John is inducting uh, the Beach Boys and he gives a lovely speech. And then Mike gets up. And uh, again, this is available on YouTube. And Mike yeah. says a few, a few words. Mike says a few words. I think it is wonderful to be here tonight. But I also think it is sad that there are other people who aren't here tonight 
and those are the people who passed away. But there are also people, people who chose not to come for other reasons. People like Paul McCartney, who couldn't be here tonight because he's in a lawsuit with Ringo and Yoko. That's a bummer because we're talking about harmony in the world. The Beach Boys did 180 performances last year. I'd like to see the mop tops match that. I'd like to see Mick Jagger get out on this stage and do I Get Around versus Jumpin' Jack Flash any day now. And I'd like to see some people kick out the jams. And I challenge the boss to get up on stage and jam. And I want to see Billy Joel, see if he can still tickle the ivories. I know Mick Jagger won't be here tonight. He's going to have to stay in England. But I'd like to see us in the Coliseum and here at Wembley Stadium because he's always been chicken shit to get on stage with the Beach Boys. (laughs) I mean... Wow, he's uh, he's such a shy retiring man, Mike Love. <laughs> Do you think um, he hadn't had his uh, daily TM meditation break? <laughs> well, he's look, he's a he's a contentious figure. He said gently, uh, Mike Love, and uh, yeah. First of all, I'd hate to break it to him that the mop tops are not touring anymore. Also, that they don't need to do 180 performances a year. Um, but uh, I've never really thought, you know, if 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 I had uh, the Rolling Stones at one end of the road and the Beach Boys at the other end of the road, I'm pretty certain I would go see the Rolling Stones, and that they would yeah. be quite easy to um, to uh, you know the Jumpin' Jack Flash would be a much more exciting thing than I get around. No shade on the Rolling Stones, and you know. I think Mike Love has uh, certainly kept the summer alive in his own crazy way for the last 60 odd years. But um, yes, that kind of sets a a, a nice tone for the evening. And, uh, you know, we have other people appearing up, which is Billy Joel, who inducts the Drifters. And, um, you know, he talks about, you know, growing up. There's a lot of people who always turn up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and talk about growing up listening to um, so-and-so. the, uh, so he talks about the drifters, you know, they changed it all for my gang before President Kennedy was shot, before the British invasion, before the counterculture, before all hell broke loose, the drifters offered my gang an alternative lifestyle. So, yeah, you think that's we didn't start the fires formulating in his head? <laughs> I think you can hear him writing that in his head right there. You know, before Kennedy was shot, before the British invasion, before counterculture, before all hell. Yeah, he, and then he suddenly goes, I have to go. I've, I've got to go and write this down on a napkin. <laughs> before JFK was blown away, what else do I have to say? Billy Joel with his then wife, uh, Christy Brinkley, who were quite a power couple in the 80s, uh, are sharing their table at the Waldorf with Yoko and Julian and Sean. Um, uh, and also George and Ringo and Bob Dylan. That that would have been full of chat. That's the table you'd want to be at. Mm. Um, I think it, I think it is a measure of where Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley were in the nineteen eighties <laughs> that they get they get to be at that table. You know, um, uh, Little Richard inducts the Supremes brilliantly. He says uh, the Supremes remind me of myself. They dress like me and they do my holler. Good old Little Richard, the one and only. He's great. He's great. Um, Bob Dylan. He's inducted by Bruce Springsteen you know, in his regular gig. And I think he's wearing the same silver jacket in, in his sort of, you know, solidarity with the people. Look, I haven't bought a new jacket since last year. And uh, it's essentially, I say he does this brilliantly. When I was a kid, his voice thrilled and scared me, made me feel irresponsibly innocent. What does that mean? It sounds great irresponsibly innocent. Yeah. It, it, you know, anyway, <laughs> and it still does. He's a revolutionary in the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. To this day, when great rock music is being made, it's in the shadow of Bob Dylan over and over and over. One, two, three, four. Off he goes. <laughs> Dylan's contemporary album was Empire Burlesque, which is not an album that anybody likes except me. Um, but Springsteen was saying, you know, if anybody else put Empire Burlesque out, it would be uh, uh, hailed as a, a great album. So 
huge standing ovation. Dylan gets up and he says, uh, thanks, Bruce. And thanks to Mike Love for not mentioning me. Peace, love and harmony is very important indeed, but so is forgiveness. And you've got to have that too. Good old Bob. Good old Bob. Absolutely nailing it. But of course, the big draw for the night is uh, the induction of the Beatles. And who is going to be given the job of inducting the Beatles into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? It was uh, Mike Love. No, it was Mick Jagger, <laughs> who, who Mike Love had called out for not being in the house. <laughs> Which is quite Mick funny. Jagger won't be. <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, I think Mike Love had accused him of being um, chicken shit uh, just uh, chicken about, shit. A, yeah. about an hour earlier on. And here he is inducting the Beatles. And um, it, it's kind of sweet, Jagger's speech. And again, it's also on YouTube and you can watch it because... Uh, there's a bit of kind of it's not that he's eating humble pie but it's no. it's kind of tough for Mick Jagger to sort of say you know what we kind of owe an awful lot to the Beatles and it's not that it's not in some ways true that you know the Beatles kind of broke through onto the charts beforehand and kind of showed a path but you know Jagger is a huge huge star and I think it's it, it's kind of um emblematic that, you know, the Beatles are so big, you have to get somebody as big as Jagger to do yeah. the, the dirty work. And Jagger kind of has to make a speech like this. It's a very generous speech that he makes. I think it is a very generous speech. And as you say, uh, Jagger and the Stones are the Beatles' peer group. Mm. You know, whereas it's, it's uh, you pointed out, you know, Springsteen is very good at, at eulogising uh you know, Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan, because he's the next generation and he can he can say, you know, these are the people that influenced me. But Jagger, his speech is, is very gracious. So he says, when I got here tonight, I saw, saw George and he said, you aren't going to say anything bad about me, are you? I couldn't think of anything really on the spur of the moment bad to say about them, because in England during those very early days, just while the Beatles were recording their first songs, it was a real wasteland. England had nothing really to offer as far as pop music was concerned. I'm assuming that uh, Cliff Richard isn't in the house. Uh, Cliff Richard is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I think is a pity. <sighs> yeah, it's a pity. Hmm. Uh, the big hits here that came from England were things like Ackerbilk, Stranger on the Shore. This is what they thought of in England. Midnight in Moscow by Kenny Ball. We all remember that. So at that point, the Stones were playing in these little clubs in London doing Chuck Berry songs and blues and things. And we loved doing that. And we pretty scruffy lot. And we thought well, we were totally unique animals. I mean, there was no one like us and then we heard there was a group from Liverpool. Now, everyone talks about, you know, Syosset and Levittown. These are references to the Billy Joel speech. But I can tell you, Liverpool. Anyway, this group, they had long hair, scruffy clothes, but they had a record contract and they had a record in the charts with a bluesy harmonica on it called Love Me Do. When I heard the combination of all these things, I was almost sick. So a little later on, you know, we were playing a little club in Richmond and I was doing this song and suddenly I saw... There they were, right in front of me, the Fab Four, John, Paul, George and Ringo, the four-headed monster. They never went anywhere alone at this point, and they had these long, black, beautiful leather trench coats. I could really die for one of those, and I thought, even though I have to learn to write songs, I'm going to get to this. Yeah, they, they, they really, yeah, it's, it's a very nice speech. He goes on to say, um, you know, later on they gave us our first big hit in England, which was a song they wrote called I Want to Be Your Man. And we were grateful for that because that really broke us in England. But the example of the way they wrote and the original way that they crafted their songs wasn't lost on us. And later on, their success in America broke down a lot of doors that helped everybody else from England that followed. And I thank them very much for those things. The one thing I never appreciated during those early years was every time I'd come to New York, they would say to me, Hey, are you a Beatle or are you a Goyle? But, you know, we learned to live with that. 
and we went through some pretty strange times. We had a sort of rivalry in those early years and a little bit of friction, but we always ended up friends, and I'd like to think we still are, because they were some of the greatest times of our lives, and I'm really proud to be the one that leads them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So a very gracious speech, very nice speech. Jagger is known for being Mick Jagger. You know, he has a certain attitude and he has a cockiness and, and he has a swagger. And I think he, he parks all of that. And I think it comes across as a very genuine, heartfelt uh, speech. So he ends his speech and George and Ringo and Yoko, Julian and Sean all come onto the stage. And Ringo quips, this band, it's growing every day. They don't really have, um, you know, again, like the, the John Mulaney joke, they don't really have any speech to make. No. Ringo, Ringo says, I've been nominated to say hi and thank you. You can sit down. I'm going to be here for hours. I'd really like to thank everyone here and everyone that's inducted us into the Hall of Fame. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's the end of Ringo's speech. And then George, uh, who is never comfortable in front of a microphone, he says, uh, I don't have much to say because I'm the quiet beetle. That's a good joke. That's a good joke. That is a good joke. It's unfortunate Paul's not here because he's the one with the speech in his pocket. Second good joke. (laughs) We all know why John can't be here. I'm sure he would be. It's hard really to stand here supposedly representing the Beatles, but it's all that's left, I'm afraid. Heartfelt moment. Mm -hmm. But we all loved him so much and we all love Paul so much. The reason we became a band is because of all of the other people who are in their Hall of Fame already. We just wanted to get guitars and get in a band because we didn't have proper jobs at the time. Anyway, it sort of turned out fine and got a bit bigger than any of us expected. I'm I'm filling up. (laughs) End of speech. Uh, And that's it. Except there is the all-star jam at the end. And perhaps if there was any good reason for Paul staying away, it is the all-star jam that happens at the end of the 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which, do we really have to talk about it? It's just terrible. It is terrible. Mm. Because it's the smallest stage in the world with the biggest stars in the world are on it. (laughs) And they're all on it. They're absolutely all on that stage. So you've got... Mike Love is on the stage. You've got Bob Dylan playing guitar, George Harrison, uh, Springsteen. You know, the Paul Schaefer is leading the band. But there is no room for anybody to do anything. And nobody's quite sure who's going to step forward. And uh, they do. I saw her standing there, which, again, I think is an interesting choice because it's a Paul song. Mm-hmm. It's also the song that John Lennon sang in his last uh, sort of live performance with Elton John. And yeah. old estranged a fiance of mine. And we've perhaps we read too much into this, but I think it it, it is telling. I think there probably was a deliberate uh, thought behind that choice. But at one point, you can see Mick singing, Bruce Springsteen is singing, and George steps forward and does the uh, head shaking mop yeah. top thing. Which I thought was, I, I think is very funny. It is quite funny. George does an ironic wobble of the head as if to sort of, you know, say how nonsense this is. You have sort of Billy Joel stuck in at the back trying to sing where he can't be seen. You have, as you say, Paul Schaefer, Dave Letterman's um, uh, band leader and the writer of It's Raining Men kind of leading the band out the front with a keytar. That's very 1988. Yep. Uh, and, and then you also have, you know, people like Dave Edmonds is hanging around on stage. Uh, Tina Turner is there. Uh, it's totally crammed. It's very, very busy. And the odd sight of George Harrison and Mick Jagger sharing a microphone um, in the in the absence of Paul. Seeing George and Mick uh, share a mic is the highlight of the evening for me. 
Yeah. They, but they do genuinely, they, they seem to be playing for themselves. Uh, that's what the only thing that I would say in, in to, to sort of excuse the ramshackle, chao- chaotic nature of it is they just seem to be having a good time. And Ringo is drumming and wobbling his head and having a good time and wandering around on the fringes. Brian Wilson, because why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, yes, and we would urge people to um, to seek out that performance on YouTube. M- maybe, you know, um, have a drink in your hand and um, uh, and take it in the spirit that it was given. But uh, yeah, all this stuff is, is, is online and it's, it's well worth seeking out. Um, the, the postscript to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, I mean, eventually all four Beatles get inducted as solo artists. Um, and yes. that's between 1994 and, and 2015. Ringo doesn't get in until 2015. George gets in in 2004. Uh, Paul uh, gets in in 1999. Um, but I suppose the most pertinent induction is John's induction in 1994. So as a postscript to everything that has happened, by the time we get to 1994... We are living in a post-Beatle lawsuit universe. And everybody yes. loves each other. Everybody loves each other. So uh, all of these lawsuits and things have uh, resolved themselves pretty much. And we are, you know, on, on the road uh, to anthology. So in May 1998, uh, the New York court dismissed the Beatles CD suit. This is the, the capital had delayed um, releasing the CDs. But they also, the uh, New York Appellate Court decides the Beatles had made sufficient allegations for fraud and conversion in relation to the royalty suit, that that goes ahead. Then they start having settlement talks. And in November 1989, they reach a settlement. But then between November 89 and 1996, they gross $300 million as a result of the settlement and the CDs. And the Beatles are back. So yeah, by 94, when John is being inducted, Paul is happy enough to get up. And he he gives a speech in the form of a letter, which we couldn't read out because it goes on for days. I mean, it's an incredibly long speech that basically is sort of, and then we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this. But I suppose it it, it is very heartfelt. It comes across that way, but it's a very detailed uh, speech. It's very long. And the fact that it's kind of written, it's written as a letter that starts, Dear John, um, like like the old sitcom, but it starts as Dear John, and it, it I, I kind of feel almost the fact that he wrote it in a letter form allows him to kind of keep a bit of distance in the letter and allows yeah. him to sort of use this form where he just he just describes things in order and all the greatest hits gets mentioned, uh, such as I remember introducing you to my mate George tick you know um (laughs) um, we were on the we we went on tour and we all changed our names tick the windscreen went out of our touring van tick um we met uh the uh you know little richard gene vincent and the ronettes tick we did the ed sullivan show his chronology is a little bit off you know he seems to put the scottish tour of 1960 after going to hamburg which uh, you know he really needed to run that letter by us um and then uh you know the other ones i think the only thing he doesn't mention is um uh you know, you'll keep that line in it. That's the best one. Uh, but he does talk about how we wrote a day in the life and we gave each other a sneaky look saying, I'd love to turn you on. Tick, there's that story. Um, and there is a funny um, joke relating to two virgins, which is, uh, you know, you took the cover yourselves. That was nothing to do with me. Ha ha ha. And I think it, it's interesting. He, he There's one paragraph I'd like to read out. And he said, um, after that, there was this girl called Yoko. Yoko Ono, as if people didn't. That's a very Jeff Lynn. Yoko, Yoko Ono. (laughs) 
Yoko Ono, who showed up at my house one day, it was John Cage's birthday, and she said she wanted to get hold of a manuscript to give John Cage various composers, and she wanted one from me and John. So I said, well, it's okay by me, but you'll have to go to John. So he is the man that introduced uh, yes. Yoko to he, John. He's very clear in saying that I met Yoko first. Um, yeah. And he does say that. And the other kind of final greatest hits he plays was that we were on the phone to each other and we were friends at the end. Tick, you know, and uh, I was glad that that happened. And he signs off, you know, this letter comes with love from your friend, Paul. John Lennon, you've made it. Tonight you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank God John Lennon has finally made it. I'm really happy. Yes, he's finally made it. (laughs) But the reason the significance of this, which is repercussions obviously in 2023, is depending on how you believe the story, this is where Yoko hands over Paul a tape of songs for them to to work on. And uh, those songs are Free as a Bird, Real Love, Grow Old With Me, and a little ditty called Now and Then. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame plays a role in the... um, Beatles 19, the Beatles 2023, number one, now and then. Isn't that correct? That is absolutely correct. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. So, yeah, the official narrative is this is the point at which uh, uh, the tapes are handed over and Yoko is Paul get together. I mean, we know that it's George and Neil Aspinall as far back as 1991, mm. um, you know, because of uh, handmade issues. Yeah, that that's that's apparently where the tape begins. But uh, irrespective of the truth of it, it is the day when she does physically hand over a tape. She does it yeah. in person, and it's also the time when Paul uses the induction. Never, never a good man to not use one bit of publicity for another bit of publicity, which we've seen this year. Here's my book. By yeah. the way, there's a new single coming out. Um, uh, to, to, to announce that, yeah, actually the Threetles thing is going to happen. So obviously it had been discussed before. It wasn't just something that came up with that tape on the day. The, the notion of um, Paul and George and Ringo recording against a John tape, this bit of news comes out with this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1994. Paul sort of recounts it and says, you know, you know Yoko was there with Sean. She played us a couple of tracks. There were two newies on mono cassettes, which he did at home. So I checked it out with Sean because I didn't want him to have a problem with it. He said, well... It'll be weird hearing a dead guy on lead vocal, but give it a try. I said to them both, if it doesn't work out, you can veto it. When I told George and Ringo I'd agreed to that, they were going, what? What if we love it? It didn't come out to that, luckily. Um, I said to Yoko, don't impose too many conditions on us. It's really difficult to do this spiritually. We don't know. We may hate each other after two hours in the studio and just walk out, maybe. Um, So don't put on any conditions. It's tough enough. And then he ended by saying mystically, I'm going to go back in in 30 years time and finish them. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. Um, but yeah, so the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of runs through all of this. It's, it's, it's an odd Hall of Fame, but it does have a little significant part to play in, in Beatle narrative. You can see the coming together at this point. You can, you know, it emerges out of that sort of tangle of litigation. You've got the When We Was Fab, you've got Paul sort of coming around to the idea of, of, of a reunion now and then, now and then. It, it, it has ramifications onto today. But yeah, the difference between the 1988 Beatles induction and the 1994 John induction is significant because in those six years, they do manage to find a way of doing business together, George, Paul, Ringo and the estate of John. And whatever stopped them from you know, moving forward with that in 19, 
88. It's all systems go for 1994. And what you get, you know, you've already seen at the end of 1993, the first fruits of the new Beatles contract, which is, again, Echoes of 2023, Red and Blue coming out on CD for the first time. Yeah. You'll, have, you'll have Live at the BBC coming out at the end of 94. And then you'll have Anthology in 95, 96. And as you say, the, the proof of the legal pudding is in the money. Isn't that a phrase? It is now. That's a phrase. (laughs) Is that by the time we get to 1996, the ability to kind of clear the runway and get all these Beatle releases off means that there's been a $300 million gross. So it was well worth everybody getting in the room and sorting all of this out. That's exactly it. And, you know, at the end of the day, money does talk. And that is not to say that there aren't still disputes, that there are still arguments, that are still contentious issues that come up post-anthology. We know that's the case, but I think it's fair to say that there was a conscious decision that these will remain behind closed doors. Mm. So, you know, particularly um, uh, following uh, the death of Linda McCartney, there seems to be a sense that uh, there is a generally united front in, in terms of Apple and you rarely hear now any of the the Beatles sort of post-96, uh, 97 criticising the other or criticising Yoko or it bubbles up occasionally in terms of, for example, the Lennon-McCartney, McCartney-Lennon songwriting. But I think it's a new way of working. There's an accommodation has been reached uh, within Apple uh, to, to, to allow these projects to drive forward that arguably still persist today. Absolutely. But what do you think, everybody? We want to send you back to the YouTube clips. They're hilarious. Um, then it's well worth watching the 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Um, but yeah, let us know what you think. We remain available in all the usual places. www.nothingwasrealpod.com is the website and that'll link you to the X account at Beatles Pod, um, the uh, Facebook group where you can have long conversations about this type of thing. And we sort of peripherally exist on Instagram and Mastodon and all sorts of places. And we're always delighted to hear your thoughts. Uh, we've got our usual bonus episodes on ACAST Plus. We want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters as well. And we also want to thank anyone who's left a nice review this year, because we've seen an awful lot of those things uh, to trickle through to us. Uh, But for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.